Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, President of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy, and I'm here today with Dr. David Baltimore. Dr. Baltimore needs little introduction. He's President Emeritus and Distinguished Professor of Biology at Caltech. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1975 at the age of 37 for discoveries concerning the interaction between tumor viruses and the genetic material of the cell. More specifically, Dr. Baltimore discovered the enzyme known as reverse transcriptase. Throughout his career, he's made many significant contributions to different fields, including molecular biology, virology, cancer, immunology, and of course, gene therapy and genome editing. He was founding director of the Whitehead Institute for Biomedical Research at MIT, president at Rockefeller University, and president of Caltech. In addition to all that, he's an accomplished educator and administrator and has made major contributions to science policy. And in his spare time, I think he's known to enjoy fly fishing. Welcome, David, and thank Hello. you so much for joining us on this first episode uh, of ASGCT's Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm very glad to be here. So let me probably get straight to it. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, about growing up in New York and Great Neck and about your family? Um, my parents moved from New York City to uh, the nearest suburb, which is Great Neck. Um, in, uh, it was about 1944. I was, I guess, about six years old. And I grew up then in, in the suburb. Um, and it was a very comfortable place to grow up. And it was also reasonably near New York City. So I always thought that the city was part of my upbringing. And uh, I'm very, very glad for that, going to the theater, going to museums, going in with my father who worked in the city. Did your parents grow up in New York as well, the New York My area? parents did grow up in New York. Um, they grew up in relatively poor circumstances. My father was actually an orphan um, at a young age and uh, only graduated from high school. My mother, on the other hand, was from a more intellectual family and a more stable family. Um, and she got a, a full education, went to NYU. And I think you also have a brother, right? Who is also has been interested in science. Uh, I, I did have a brother. Um, unfortunately, he died uh, last year. Um, he was a physician um, on the faculty at Yale university for most of his life was in pediatric infectious disease uh interested uh, particularly in bacterial infections um and the infections of cf patients so was there science in the family was there talk did you talk about science early on or how did you notice that you were interested in science <laughs> I think it mostly came from school where things that related to science and to math, mathematics in particular, came very easily to me, were interesting to me. Um, it was a natural affinity. And then I think your one of your first 
sort of steps toward a scientific career was your experience at the uh, Jackson Laboratory in Maine, correct? That's correct. One day my mother came back from, she, she was actually a faculty member at the New School for Social Research in New York at the time. And she came back from a day there and said she had seen this notice on a bulletin board of a summer program for high school students. Would I be interested? Uh, and uh, I thought that was a wonderful idea. Uh, and so applied for it and was accepted to spend most of the summer in Bar Harbor, Maine, um, actually doing experiments with uh, very well-known faculty. It was a, a just a tremendous opportunity. It must have been yeah, a great environment. You met Howard Timmon there as well, correct? I did. Howard uh, had been coming to Bar Harbor uh, in summers before that. Uh, he was significantly older than me. Uh, and so he served as a sort of guru for the high school students. Uh, whenever you had a question, you went to Howard and Howard either knew the answer or knew how to find the answer. He was sort of the Google of his time. Did you sort of stay in touch with him after that at all? or uh, uh, Sort of, not very much. Uh, he was on his way to graduating from Swarthmore College. And I went to Swarthmore, but I we never really overlapped. That, of course, brings me to the next question. What what was the decision process? You know, what, why did you go to Swarthmore? I mean, I, I know you had other opportunities as well. So you must have had some uh, thought about why Swarthmore at that time. The, the experience at Jackson Lab had convinced me that I wanted to spend my life as an experimental scientist, um, working with the questions of what makes life possible. And having made that decision, I didn't feel that I needed to go to a university that was particularly focused in science and that I wanted to get a more general liberal arts-based education. And so I chose to go to Swarthmore College and I applied there and was accepted. It actually had many, I had many connections to Swarthmore that made it a, a relatively simple decision. Mm -hmm. Was your mother involved at all in that decision or? Yes, my mother was. My mother was a student of the Gestalt psychologists. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh, the group of German psychologists who came to the United States because of World War II and because of the, the fascists. And they settled on the East Coast of the United States uh, at Swarthmore College at the New School and a couple of other places. And that's where she was educated and she knew those people personally. Um, she she was one of the last of the Gestalt psychologists. Wow. So then after Swarthmore, uh, what was your next step? Uh, I had to decide where to go to graduate school. Um, and there were very few organized graduate programs in molecular biology in 1960 when I went to uh, graduate school. Remember, the, the structure of DNA was only uh, announced in 1953, so uh, it had yet to take 
complete hold uh, of uh, biology another 10 years and everybody was doing molecular biology. And I was lucky to find a program at MIT that was just starting up. Salvador Luria had been enticed to MIT uh, to form this program. He had previously done his work in, in the Midwest. And it was a fabulous opportunity to join the graduate program at MIT, which was just then taking off. And I came to MIT and, and studied in biophysics for that year. But by the, as I went through that year, I realized that what I really wanted to do was study animal virology, animal viruses. And that was not something I could do at MIT. And I, I actually did a, a summer program at Cold Spring Harbor uh, after my first year of graduate school and took the course in animal virology. And there I met Richard Franklin, who was a professor at Rockefeller. Uh, and he and I got, along, got on very well and I wanted to do my thesis with him. And so I transferred from MIT to Rockefeller and worked with Richard. So after Rockefeller, when did you start then working on the work that ultimately led to the uh, Nobel Prize? Well, I left Rockefeller after a couple of years, actually, um, spent some more time at MIT, also at um, Albert Einstein. And uh, when I was in New York, I chanced to meet Bernardo Del Becco, and we got on well, and he he was then just thinking about moving from Caltech, where he was a professor, to the Salk Institute, which was then in formation. And so he asked me whether I wanted to join him uh, because he was being given a big laboratory. He said he didn't really need all that space. He would give me a piece of that laboratory and the freedom to do whatever I wanted. And what I wanted to do was to continue the work that I had started on poliovirus and its relatives. Um, and so I did that at the Salk Institute for a couple of years and then moved to MIT, where I then spent most of the next 30 years. And all of that was focused around uh, research on poliovirus and its relatives. And toward the, uh, af after I got settled actually at MIT, uh, I decided to expand the laboratory and to work on some other viruses. And the one that I chose actually was a vesicular stomatitis virus, a virus that's not well known to most people, but was well known to my wife, Alice Wong, uh, who had done her thesis working with that virus. And so she helped it get established as a system in, in the lab. And we very quickly discovered that it was a negative strand virus and that there was a whole differentiation between positive and negative strands. And that led to discovering the polymerase that allows the virus to replicate, finding it in the virus particle, and suggested that maybe other viruses had polymerases in their virus particles. And the one that I then turned to was the RNA tumor viruses.
because they were enigmatic. Uh, it was just unclear how they replicated and how they took over the properties of cells to turn them from normal cells into cancer cells. And so I looked for a polymerase in those particles, the particles of those viruses, and found the uh, reverse transcriptase, uh, a DNA polymerase in, in an RNA virus. I think I read somewhere, now you had named it differently, and I think... Well, I, uh, I just named it the uh, a DNA-dependent RNA polymerase. Sorry, I, I have that backwards. An RNA-dependent DNA polymerase on the basis of its biochemistry. And uh, the, the people writing in Nature magazine who had much more of a popular orientation into their writing uh, said this should be called the reverse transcriptase. And that caught on immediately. And it's been known ever since as that. Right. And really changed, modified this dogma that was that was established or had been uh, present. That's right. I mean, we, we were pretty focused on the central dogma that um, DNA makes RNA and RNA makes protein, um, enunciated by Francis Crick and others. Uh, and our work reversed that thinking some um, and was uh, it really filled out the understanding of the, the movement of information in biologic systems. So had you been in touch with Howard Temin at that time? Because you then ended up you know, publishing back to back. Yes. Uh, when I made the discovery, which was work I carried out in the laboratory by myself, the first thing I did was to pick up the phone and call Howard, who was then at the University of Wisconsin, to tell him. And he said, well, he was working along the same lines uh, and actually had mentioned that work in a meeting he was at previously. And so I said, well, look, why don't we publish back to back? And uh, he finished up the work in his lab. Actually, uh, he had a postdoc doing the work uh, named uh, Mizutani. And the paper, when, when he submitted it, was Mizutani and Temin. But Nature said, no, you have to do it the other way around. <laughs> and um, so it came out as Temin and Mizutani. Well, you didn't have that problem. You had one author on the paper. Uh, I did not have that problem. <laughs> Which is I, I just unusual had, nowadays. <laughs> well, it is. But I felt that this was such a long shot uh, that... I shouldn't give it to anybody else to do. It was something yeah. that I should, uh, if I if I believed that it was a worthwhile experiment, I should just do it myself. And in those days, I worked in the lab. So, since of course this is a podcast for ASCCT, I want to get here a little bit on getting to that the famous conference, or there have been conferences though before the famous 1975 conference in Asilomar. What was sort of uh, that, that time leading up to the 1975 Asilomar conference, what was happening in that space? You, you know, in, in the work that we did, one of the very strong implications was that these viruses could be used to bring new genes into cells. And that was actually proven shortly thereafter. And so the notion of gene therapy was born uh, by the biochemistry, because the biochemistry said it could be it could be done. In those days, 
we simply didn't have the tools to put genes into a virus, uh, to, make, to, to isolate the genes that you might want to use for gene therapy. All of that was in a dream world. But over the period from 1970, when I, when I did the work on reverse transcriptase, to 1974, the tools to do that came became available, and they are the tools of recombinant DNA, uh, mostly from bacteria. And now the biochemistry offered us ways to isolate genes, to stitch those genes into vectors, and to transform those into cells. Um, and so it was a very different picture. And the key observations that you could do that were in the experiments of, of um, Berg and I blocked the names of the, the guys who did the, the work stitching together plasma DNA in, uh, in California. And so with that knowledge that you could uh, manipulate DNA in that way, it, it became a reality that that gene therapy would be possible. It took a long time to solve the logistic problems and to uh, get people comfortable with the idea, particularly in, in experimental animals. I think, I mean, that meeting was obviously critical to set the stage for, for many guidelines that came out of that uh, meeting then. So what, what was sort of the outcome of the meeting uh, and, and sort of for the, the public and for um, NIH then? Well, we held the Asilomar meeting because there were many people who were concerned that we hadn't, didn't have enough experience with this technology to know that it couldn't cause the development of, of, of dangerous organisms and that it couldn't undercut, for instance, the value of antibiotics. There, there are a variety of things that people worried about. And so we held a meeting to really say, we understand these concerns, we want to face them head on, and where do we go from here? And what we decided at that meeting was that we wanted a graded acquisition of the technology, first for doing things that didn't seem to offer any danger, uh, and then working with increasingly potentially dangerous organisms like viruses. And so we held off on doing work with viruses for quite a while uh, until we were comfortable with the technology and until we had shown that we could keep it in the laboratory. It wasn't going to get out and, and uh, cause danger in the community. I'd like to skip actually a bit ahead uh, for now, just uh, uh, to link really to the current sort of uh, debates around gene editing. And you've uh, shared, of course, the first and second summit, international summit on uh, human genome editing. And of course, uh, you were in Hong Kong during the, uh, the last uh, summit, uh, where, of course, we learned about the uh, CRISPR babies and uh, Ha Jinkui. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? And did that remind you of the Asilomar time? <laughs> yes, it certainly did. Um, when we organized the first gene summit around CRISPR, 
it was a, a copy of of uh, what we had done with recombinant DNA, but it had a very great difference. And the difference was that in the Asilomar meeting, we actually said that the ability to modify human genes was something far off into the distance. And we had much more immediate issues that we spent our time on. At the first summit and the second summit, the focus was entirely on, or not entirely, but mainly on um, human modification. And the ability, because what CRISPR gave us was the ability to modify single nucleotides or small amounts of, of genetic information in human beings. And in fact, the, the He Jiang Kui's work showed that you could do it, but I think everybody knew you could do it. It was only a matter of, it was a matter of whether you should do it or not. Uh, was it safe and was it uh, something which we wanted to see human uh, beings doing? And he he jumped way ahead and and did what was generally conceived to be morally inappropriate and, and ended up spending time in jail for it. It's, so it was the focus on humans that made the difference. Uh, and makes the difference. And we still don't feel that we have solved all of the problems of the technology so that we can even comfortably suggest that we think about modifying human heredity. But I think the day is coming when we will. And at that point, we have to face the problem of should we. Now, if you ask me, I think we should have the ability to modify certain key genes which cause serious health problems for people so that we can rid our genomes of, of certain kinds of mutations which um, are lethal, which are uh, cause serious disease. Whether we should modify our genome to try to mold humans into something that they're not is a different question. And the question, and I think there is where the moral issues arise. And I'm not comfortable at all saying that we should move ahead with any modification of human genomes, uh, which is not medically of great importance. So I think there were two sort of a little bit two camps, right? One for a moratorium and one really for cautious evaluation of the technology. Right. And um, I think both of those come out to be the same thing. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, because a moratorium says we shouldn't, there are things we shouldn't do now. Oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the time may come. So that, could if that door is open though would could be a slippery slope obviously the book by walter isaacson no he has got beautiful chapters now yeah people that. love people love like isaacson to talk about slippery slopes 
Um, <laughs> and you know, there are there are possibilities of having people doing things that that they say, well, other people did it, I can do it. And that's sort of the basis of the slippery slope. But you can control that. Uh, it's not inevitable. And I think we need to control it. And what we did at Asilomar was to set up a thoughtful process that allowed us to move forward slowly and carefully and to say there are certain things we shouldn't do and we just won't do them. And that that has held very effectively. So the precedent is there. Can we also learn from, you know, the experience from in vitro fertilization, of course, now pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, how this is being handled? Right, but, you know, there it really is a matter of people being uncomfortable with the kind of manipulations that are involved, but it's it's not it, it's not a matter of of um, of modifying inheritance. It's a matter of selection, and and I think it it raises very different sorts of issues, and I think we're now comfortable with it, and and there are many children, thousands being born as a consequence of selective processes. Thank you for these very uh, frank remarks. And I'd like to, you've spent a lot of time in your career as well on HIV. I'd like to switch over to HIV a little bit. Yes. Since this is really, obviously you've been instrumental in some of the policies already and a very early uh, stage on uh, in, involved in, in very important discussions. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit about, I mean, you were, I think, um, again, again, involved very early on how you, how you remember the uh, HIV and AIDS and what has developed in terms of treatment. And then of course, also the uh, future potentially uh, for, for curative treatments. Well, in 1980, 81, I became aware of a disease that was plaguing the, the gay community in particular. And it was a scary disease. First of all, it was lethal. Second of all, um, we couldn't figure out how it was being uh, transmitted or whether it was an infectious transmission or whether it was some other environmental cause. And I remember thinking, you know, we had 10 years earlier discovered the reverse transcriptase and the class of viruses that have the reverse transcriptase, maybe this had something to do with that. But um, I, I didn't have the ability to work on that question. Uh, and luckily other people did. And it was the work that we had done, by the biochemistry that we had done, they provided the clue uh, that the disease was being caused by a virus that had a reverse transcriptase. It was really surprising, but, um, but it was as clear. And so when the underlying nature of these viruses became clear, 
we didn't have an organized research program in the United States or anywhere in the world for that matter uh, to investigate these new viruses and how they're linked to the, the tumor viruses. And there was a, because it was largely a gay disease, there was a, a strong inhibition to setting up a, a, a large-scale research program. And the U.S. government was simply not acting. And so the National Academy of Sciences decided to have a, a study on what kinds of research should be done. Uh, and they asked me, because I had experience with this class of viruses, to, to co-head the study uh, with a physician who, who, um, could who knew more of the epidemiology. And so I agreed to do that, formed a committee, and we, in, a, in about a year, produced a report called Confronting AIDS, which called for a billion-dollar program of research. A billion dollars meant an awful lot in those days. And I must say, I think most people thought we had overreacted. But in fact, within a few years, we had a billion dollar research program going. Uh, and it completely changed our understanding of this virus and, and the kind of disease that it causes. There are still enigmatic aspects to HIV. Uh, HIV brought us many genetic capabilities we had never seen before. Mm -hmm. uh, and so understanding how the virus replicates has been a huge undertaking, international undertaking. Um, and because it doesn't affect most experimental animals, you have to work with it with uh, primates. Uh, and that's, that is limited the ability to, to move forward. You yourself have contributed to that. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, lots of has happened. Of course, we've got great treatment with the antiretroviral therapies, um, but there's still very few cures. And the, the only cures that we've experienced, I believe, the few ones have been with, you know, for example, bone marrow transplantation, which of course right. you know, could not be, would not be appropriate for, for people living with HIV without any you know, um, hematologic or, or other malignancy. So w what do you think is the future here? Do you think we'll, we'll find a cure for HIV that does not involve uh, like a transplant? Uh, vaccines also have not been as successful as we were hoping for. Uh, I think I'm hopeful that we will find a way to make a vaccine. Um, although, an enormous amount of effort has been put into that. Uh, and we're still significantly far from having anything that can function as a vaccine. And we're, we're more hopeful that we can find chemicals that can literally cure an infection and get rid of the virus from an infected person. But that's also extremely difficult because the virus hides in DNA that makes it very hard to get rid of. So I think we may be living with HIV for a long time. Uh, I would never say 
that anything is impossible uh, because we have a very resourceful research community which finds ways around almost everything. But HIV has been probably the most difficult single research focus that we've ever had um, because, we, for instance, we did a lot better with coronavirus than we've done with HIV. Do you think we can learn more from these transplants that led to cure? I mean, we know the immune system is obviously very powerful, um, plus, you know, the um, HIV resistant cells that were used, you know, the CCR5 um, um, negative cells. I don't think it'll become a methodology that we can use widely uh, to get rid of HIV. It involves really completely replacing the immune system of a person with a new immune system, which is itself immune to HIV. I, I, I just can't see doing that on a, on a society-wide scale. Yeah. So maybe just come in a few more questions, uh, David. What do you see as the biggest challenge you now for current gene therapy? Of course, maybe HIV could be one uh, as well, since we're trying to do HIV for gene therapy. But really, what do you think is the biggest uh, challenge? And of course, that also probably gets a little bit into costs, you know, since we know for certain diseases, gene therapy can work, but then there's also uh, uh, costs, you know, high costs involved. Right. Uh, we... we seem to be solving the logistic problems so that we now have proven gene therapy successes for many diseases and FDA approval for a small number of uh, gene therapy methodologies. Uh, but as you say, uh, the cost to do these is enormous. So that makes it something that we simply can't do for large numbers of people. I, I would take as a focus uh, sickle cell disease uh, because it's so widespread. And uh, we, we just simply can't afford to do the kinds of therapy that would be necessary to eliminate sickle cell. Uh, and so we're going to continue to have people born with, with the problem. And there are thalassemia, other diseases uh, of, uh, of the hematopoietic nature that we're learning how to deal with, but we're not learning how to deal, deal with in a simple enough fashion. So we have to keep working on it. Uh, and we have to try to make gene therapy uh, simpler, uh, more efficient, more effective, and I think we will. Um, we have companies doing that. We have research laboratories. We have lots of people interested in it. And I, I think it will uh, slowly become something which is, is, is more easily done. If we can find a way to actually insert genes and have them home to the right place, that would, that would help a lot. I think there's a large effort currently now to do this sort of in vivo right. gene therapy. So this could be delivered and be an off the shelf type uh, therapy. And of course, uh, could also hopefully also be applicable to um, 
um, people living with HIV if there's a gene therapy um, approach available. Right. One last question is, so, uh, well, two last questions. Your thoughts on the current situation for young scientists and trainees. I know you've been very interested in nurturing, training uh, young scientists. And what, what would be your recommendation? Or what is your feeling how things are going right now? I think we have developed a training framework which does not serve students well. We're keeping them in a dependent situation too long. We're insisting that they stay in training too long. We're not giving them the freedom to try out their own ideas, to take their own directions. And it is the creativity of, of new people coming into the field, which is the wellspring from which uh, we get progress. And so we're actually inhibiting our own ability to, to make progress. I would like to see us cut down the training time, give more freedom to young people, to not focus so much on collaboration and cooperation, but on the um, development of individuals uh, who can take new directions and who aren't freighted with the the uh, past, uh, but can think about the future. Should there be more money available through NIH, through grants or grant mechanisms? Uh, yes, I, I, I certainly would like to see more money available through NIH, but I think also there's a very important role for philanthropy. And with the um, development of, of so many billionaires, who could easily afford to support some aspect of, of scientific research, that we could have a, mi a mixed support system uh, where private philanthropy plays a very important role. And private philanthropists have the ability to take new directions without having to ask permission. Now, it means they're going to do some stupid things but it also means that they can do creative things. Thank you so much. The last question really is, so do you still get enough time to really go out and fly fish? Are you still doing it? <laughs> I did, I was fly fishing uh, a, a couple of weeks ago. Wonderful. Uh, in Montana. Thank you very much, Dr. Baltimore, for this interview. Pleasure to be with you.